Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. Llanfairpwllgwyngyll is a village located on the picturesque Welsh island of Anglesey. That's not its full name. The village boasts the longest place name in Europe. Tourists like to go to the train station to be photographed next to the sign, which displays the village's name in its entirety. Challenging to pronounce at 58 characters, it is said to translate to St Mary's Church in the hollow of the White Hazel, near a rapid whirlpool, and the church of St Cilio near the Red Cave. Llanfairpwllgwyngyll is divided into two sections. The upper village encompasses the church on the knoll and consists predominantly of older homes and farms. Then there is the lower part of the village, fronted by a modern train station, and consisting of commercial buildings. With sweeping views of Snowdonia and the Menai Strait, the area is a popular location for retiring couples. Many are drawn not only to its beauty, but also the low crime rate. In 2001, there was only one burglary in the village, a theft from a caravan. People felt comfortable knowing their elderly parents were safe in the community. That same year, however, the sleepy village was rocked by the discovery of a brutal murder, a killing which completely upended the notion of safety in what was considered a peaceful location. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 8 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. It was just before lunchtime on Sunday, November 25th, 2001, when Glenis Groom, a Meals on Wheels volunteer, made her way to the home of an elderly client. Mabel Lation was a 90-year-old widow, living alone in a beige-brick bungalow in Llanfair Pwyllgwyngyll on Anglesey, 
Glenys approached Mabel's front door and knocked loudly. She received no response. Glenys considered that Mabel did not hear the knock given the homeowner's age and profound deafness, so she knocked harder. But once again Mabel did not come to the front door. Glenys peered through the front window, but the curtains were drawn obscuring the view. She then walked round to the back of the home, hoping to see Mabel in the kitchen. There she noticed shards of glass on the ground near the back doorstep. Glenys paused at the concerning sight. She could see that a window in the patio door had been smashed. There were pieces of slate nearby, and Glenys observed that on the surface of one of them, there was a bloody footprint. Panicked, she called out to Mabel, but there was no response. The only sounds were the television blaring from inside the home and the faint chirping of birds in the garden. An intense fear washed over Glenys. Her hands were shaking as she dialed 999. Mabel Lation was born and raised in the Llangefni area of Wales. Her parents were farmers at Triganath and tenants of the Bulkley estate. Mabel would find love with Captain William Lation. The couple were married, but chose not to have any children together. William had been married before and had a son John from a previous relationship. In the 1960s, William and Mabel set their sights on the picturesque village of Llanvaipwyllgwyngyll. The pair had a bungalow built in the upper part of the village. A keen and talented artist, Mabel's paintings and drawings adorned the walls of the home. Mabel's art showed the softer side of her nature, featuring charming landscapes and animals. Mabel and William enjoyed just over a decade of blissful retirement together in their home. They enjoyed afternoon walks around the village, or just taking in the view from their garden. Evenings were spent cooking dinner together, before retreating to the living room to read a book or watch television. Sadly, in the early 1970s, William Lation passed away. Mabel was distraught. She had been devoted to her partner, and not only were they husband and wife, but they were considered best friends. Mabel was struck with another tragedy just a couple of months later, when her stepson John also died. Mabel had no children of her own, and no close relatives to lean on. Nonetheless, she adapted to life as a widow. She took pleasure and pride in a simple life. Each morning she would wake up at around 7am. Her morning routine always included sitting down at the dresser to apply some lipstick. She was a familiar face at the local hairdresser, where she liked to get her hair permed. Appearances were important to Mabel. Bedtime was around 11pm, but that did depend on what was on the television. Mabel had a keen interest in current affairs and was always up to date with any political discussions. She loved her home and liked to ensure it was clean and tidy, although she had few visitors, apart from a gardener who came by every so often. Mabel firmly believed that the home was a place of privacy and would never let a stranger come in. The door was always locked. Mabel's hearing declined significantly in recent years and she wore hearing aids. She also had problems with her eyes and eventually needed to have cataracts removed. Despite Mabel's age and suffering from several health issues, she still had a sharp mind 
living as independent a life as she could. While she did have help from social services, Mabel wanted to remain living in the home that she loved so dearly. The thought of moving into a care home horrified her, and she was proud of her independence. To ensure her safety and to continue living independently, Mabel kept little reminders around the home. These prompts were in the form of teddy bears. Mabel would place them in front of certain things, remembering to turn something off or carry out a task or chore. Unfortunately for Mabel, although she enjoyed her life, she often felt lonely. Since she had no immediate family, most days were spent alone. Several people did check in on Mabel, though. There was Glenys, the Meals on Wheels volunteer. While Mabel did not get a Meals on Wheels delivery, Glenys came each day to make Mabel's lunch anyway. The friends had developed a close bond. And there was Beatrice Williams, Mabel's distant cousin, who was also an occasional visitor. Some weeks Beatrice would take Mabel shopping in the village, stopping in Marks and Spencers and other local stores. For several years Mabel had thought about adopting a dog. While she had loved all animals, with many of them featuring in her artwork, Mabel had a strong affinity for dogs, having owned a number throughout her life. There was nothing that could compare to the company of a dog, and Mabel had longed for a furry companion. However, she ultimately decided against it, believing that taking on a pet at her age would be unfair. She was well aware of her mortality. At 90 years old, Mabel knew that a dog would most likely outlive her. Once Glenys' groom called 999, the police were dispatched to Mabel's bungalow. PC Alison Hughes and PC Neil Andrew Jones were the first officers to arrive on the scene that afternoon. They walked to the back of the home and looked at the damage to the property. With no way to gain entry other than breaking down the front door, PC Hughes and PC Jones removed some of the jagged glass from the smash window and carefully climbed through. They canvassed the home from room to room, calling Mabel's name as they went. As the two police officers approached the front living room, they were met by a blast of heat and the sound of the television. They could see that the three-bar electric fire was at full power. The heat from the bars created an orange hue in the room. PC Hughes and PC Jones proceeded further, but the officers were unprepared for such a horrific scene, especially in such a quaint and quiet village. There was blood spatter across the walls and floor. Mabel Lation was dead. A frail body slumped over in a chair, and covered in blood-soaked blankets. When the covers were removed, the officers could see the full extent of her injuries. At first sight, it seemed as though Mabel had been stabbed numerous times. Her legs were propped up on a stool, and there were deep gashes. It appeared Mabel's legs were drained of blood. Inspecting her body further, the officers could see a massive, jagged hole in Mabel's chest. Her heart was missing. As PC Hughes and PC Jones scanned the room, on a silver platter on the floor, they noticed a bloody saucepan. In the saucepan, there was something wrapped up in newspaper. It was Mabel's heart. On the edge of the bloody saucepan, there appeared to be a mark in the shape of a lip, 
as if somebody had been drinking blood from it. In front of Mabel's feet, officers saw that two brass-handled pokers had been crudely placed in the shape of a cross. Mabel Nation's body was removed from the scene and taken for a post-mortem examination. It was concluded by the pathologist that she had died as a result of multiple stab wounds to the chest and abdomen, five of which pierced her heart. In addition to the stab wounds to Mabel's chest, there were eight stab wounds to her shoulder and breast, three to her neck and five to her back. There were other slash and stab wounds to her body that had been inflicted after death. The attacker had fractured a number of her ribs. Mabel had also sustained a deep gash to her chest, which was 20 centimetres long and 23 centimetres wide. From this large wound, Mabel's killer had ripped out her heart. There was evidence that Seven Stone Mabel had fought fiercely for her life, sustaining defensive wounds to the left arm and right hand. She had grabbed a knife at one stage, but was not strong enough to fight off her killer. The size of the village meant that within hours, most of the community had learned of Mabel Lation's murder. Was her killer local? Would they strike again in the small community? One neighbour who did not want to be named said, There is great concern in the village because there are so many elderly people round here who live on their own. It's awful to think this should happen to a gentle old lady and that someone must have noticed that she was on her own. The collective fear only increased when Detective Chief Inspector John Clayton, head of CID in the Western Division, announced, Whoever did this is an extremely dangerous person who could strike again. In an attempt to allay the public's fears, extra patrols were undertaken while the investigation got underway. Residents in the village had often slept with their windows open and even kept their doors unlocked. That all changed as news of Mabel's murder swept through the area. There was a sharp increase in sales of security systems and an influx of calls to the police for advice on enhancing home security, as many feared they could be next. 94-year-old Catherine Thomas commented to a reporter for The Independent, It has frightened me. This part of the village is very quiet. You have a lot of widows living here. I have never felt afraid here of anything, but I feel afraid now. Almost 60 police officers were drafted in to assist the murder inquiry. One of their first tasks was to establish when exactly Mabel Lation was killed. Glenis Groom had last seen her alive on Friday afternoon, two days before Mabel was found dead. The following afternoon, Mabel had spoken to a friend on the telephone. This was the last contact from Mabel indicating she had been killed at some point between Saturday evening and Sunday morning. Crime scene tapes surrounded the bungalow, as forensic experts combed through the home and garden for any clues the killer might have left behind. Based on the blood evidence inside the living room, experts established that Mabel had been killed while sitting on her favourite armchair in front of the television. The killer had then moved her body and placed it on a second chair in the living room. As forensic experts continued their search for DNA and fingerprints, it quickly became apparent that the attacker must have used gloves as no unidentified prints were found. However, the killer had left behind one small piece of evidence, blood on the smashed window frame. 
At first, experts thought the blood was smeared with a bare finger, but upon closer inspection, it became evident that the blood had not come from a finger, but from a finger inside a piece of fabric, most likely a latex glove. The blood contained a combination of DNA from Mabel and an unknown male. It was recovered from the exact spot where the killer would have to reach to steady themselves as they climbed out of the window. The first tip received from the public came in almost immediately. In the days leading up to Mabel Lation's murder, a blue van had been seen in her driveway. There were few visitors to the property, and neighbours had never seen the vehicle before. One neighbour explained he had been walking past Mabel's home when he saw a man sitting in the passenger seat of the blue van. Another neighbour recalled to the police that she had seen two men in their twenties, also near a blue vehicle. One had short hair in a crew cut and was wearing a bright multicoloured jumper. The other had a long fringe and curly hair on top. In addition to trying to find the murder weapon and identify the driver of the van, police were trying to establish a motive. Mabel was a defenceless elderly lady who lived alone. She was gentle, non-offensive and liked to keep to herself. But as hard as they tried, detectives could not find anyone who held a grudge and Mabel had no known enemies. A sexual motivation was immediately ruled out and police now wanted to determine whether it was a burglary gone wrong. The officers were trained to understand crime scenes, and based on some of the bizarre aspects of the crime and brutality of the murder, they thought this was unlikely. Officers working the murder investigation were stumped, so the National Crime Agency and a criminal psychologist were enlisted to try and create a profile of the elusive killer. Police would also reach out to the FBI for assistance in the case. Plan via Puithgwingil is only a small village of around 3,000 residents, and local officers had never handled a case of this magnitude before. Detective Chief Inspector Clayton explained, It is so rare we have to look at the experience of others who have been involved in investigating these sorts of crimes. As the killer's profile was being developed, police began to examine CCTV footage of traffic crossing the Britannia Bridge, which linked the island to the mainland. The bridge was just a stone's throw from Mabel's home. The authorities also released details of a salesman seen in the village the day before Mabel was killed. He was described as stocky, white, aged between 40 to 50. However, very few tips from the public came in. It seemed that nobody could identify either the driver or passenger of the blue van, or the salesman. The authorities attempted to gather information from the community by asking them to think back to their exact routine on the day that Mabel was found dead and try to remember if they had seen or heard anything suspicious. Early the next month, a member of the public was walking his dog underneath the Britannia Bridge when something caught his eye, protruding from underneath a bush. The man decided to get closer to inspect the unfamiliar object. It was something he did not expect to see. He realised that he was staring directly at the charred body of a man in a crouching, curled-up position. 
police were dispatched to the scene immediately at the foot of the bridge. They were joined by Acting Detective Superintendent Alan Jones, who was leading the investigation into Mabel Lation's murder. The deceased male was identified as 37-year-old David Glyn Griffiths. A post-mortem would conclude that he had died of smoke inhalation and multiple injuries, including fractures to the spine and skull. He had doused himself with petrol and set himself alight before jumping to his death from the bridge. Rumours began running rampant in the village that David Griffiths was somehow connected to Mabel's murder. Some within the community speculated that he had killed Mabel and then taken his own life. Much had been made of the fact that Griffiths came from a religious family and tended not to socialise. Detective Superintendent Jones dispelled the rumours, stating, There is nothing at this stage to say that this body is linked to a crime, and at this time, we are not linking it to the murder of Mabel Lation. Soon an atmosphere of fear spread, reaching other parts of the quaint Welsh island of Anglesey. Several days after David Glyn Griffiths was officially ruled out as a suspect, a decomposed body washed ashore on the beach of Aberfrow. The unidentified man was discovered on December 4th, 2001. Sadly, even to this day, police have been unsuccessful in finding out who he was. The details are vague. The only information available is that he was white, between 40 and 60 years old, with a medium build. He was 5 feet 8 inches tall. The following day, more shocking news reached local residents when the body of 60-year-old Patricia Thomason was found in a cemetery at Llanbadric. As the bodies were transported to the pathologist's office for a cause of death to be determined, many pensioners became fearful and the mystery of Mabel Lation's murder deepened. The spectre of a serial killer loomed over the island. 93-year-old Rhiannon Jones said to the Western Mail, The person who murdered Mrs. Lation was a monster, and now they have found another lady. It seems like there are bodies turning up everywhere on Anglesey. Postmortems confirm that both the unidentified man and Patricia Thomason's death were not linked to what happened to Mabel Lation. They were just tragic events or accidents. These developments dispelled some unease, but still Mabel's murder remained unsolved, and the killer could still be somewhere on the island. The investigation was now in full swing, with over 500 people having been spoken to by the police. Also, the authorities had established that burglary was not the motivation behind Mabel Lation's murder. At the crime scene, a substantial amount of money was left behind, and it appeared as though nothing had been stolen. Mabel was quite the avid antiques collector, yet all of her precious items remained inside the bungalow. It was evident from the scene that it was not simply a case of a defenceless elderly woman confronting a burglar. Officers never believed that robbery was the motive. Nevertheless, it was something they needed to conclusively rule out. Almost two weeks after Mabel's body was found, a call would be made to the police on December 7th from a fresh eyewitness. They said they had seen a man outside Mabel's home on the weekend that she was killed. He was carrying a large rucksack. Police would appeal for the man to come forward, and surprisingly he did present himself to the authorities the following day. 
The man was subsequently ruled out of the inquiry. It was another lead that went nowhere. While robbery had been ruled out, a motivation for the killing was still eluding the police. Investigators thought back to the crime scene and the oddly situated brass-handled pokers. They considered that Mabel Lation's killer had purposefully placed the pokers in the shape of a cross, and detectives began to work on the idea that she could have been the victim of a religious slaying, possibly committed by some kind of cult or someone obsessed with the occult. Detective Superintendent Jones commented to the Western Mail, This is obviously a strange thing for the offender to do, and we are probably not looking for anybody who has been in contact with the police before. Some experts on the occult gave their opinion on the case. Graham King, a curator at the Museum of Witchcraft, said that the strange ritual surrounding Mabel's murder was unlike anything he had seen before. He provided his thoughts on the significance of the pokers arranged in a cross. There is a lot written about crosses. The equal-armed cross is a pre-Christian symbol. It sounds more like the actions of some deranged Christian than anyone involved in the occult. There are lots of symbols within the occult and I would have expected to see more of these at the murder scene if it was meant to be some sort of ritualistic occult murder. You would expect to see other symbols like the five-pointed star or scripts and text used by occultists. Initially, some of the most gruesome aspects of the crime scene were not revealed to the public, such as the bloody saucepan and the gashes to Mabel's legs. When these details were finally publicised, tips came in from far and wide. A minister called the police and shared his concern about a member of the church who he felt was filled with the devil's witchcraft. Another phone call came in from a woman who shared her fears about a person she knew who seemed to be obsessed with vampires and the occult. All of the tips were extensively investigated, but none of them could produce a suspect or a person of interest. Another angle the police explored was whether Mabel's killer had some kind of medical training. Mabel's heart had been removed with a level of skill, and the police began appealing to doctors, nurses mental health workers in the hope that they could provide some tips that could lead the authorities to the killer. Around the one-month mark of Mabel Lation's murder, the case appeared on BBC's Crime Watch. The segment contained a reconstruction of the days leading up to the killing. An appeal was made for information about the van spotted in Mabel's driveway. The driver and the passenger had not yet identified themselves to the police, and they needed to be ruled out of the inquiry. Once it aired, not only did tips trickle into the hotline, but also a financial reward was announced to help catch Mabel's killer. The new year brought new developments, when police revealed that they had plans to DNA test the entire community. So far they had asked each person they interviewed to provide a voluntary sample, but none had come back as a match to the DNA found at the crime scene. In addition, officers carried out more door-to-door inquiries in the village. They had already interviewed everybody who lived in the vicinity of Mabel's home. Still with no leads to go on, they had reached a dead end. As door-to-door inquiries were being carried out, the police were made aware of a disturbing incident that had taken place in the village just two months before Mabel Lation was killed. A teenage German exchange student had been staying in the village 
and she befriended another teenager who lived nearby. His teenager was obsessed with vampires and tried to get the German exchange student to bite him so that he could become a vampire. This person was identified as 17-year-old Matthew Hardman. Hardman lived with his mother Julie, her husband Alan, and his sisters just 180 yards from Mabel Lation's bungalow. Hardman had already spoken with the police during their initial inquiries, but he had not been asked to provide a DNA sample because he was a juvenile. Two days after Mabel was murdered, Hartman had told police that he had never met her and he was at a friend's home on the day she was killed. Upon learning of the earlier incident with the German exchange student, police decided they would re-interview Hartman. He acknowledged that he had read a handful of books on vampires, but denied he had a keen interest in them. Police were still suspicious, so they contacted Hardman's friend David Lamb, who Hardman claimed he had been with on the day Mabel Lation was murdered. Lamb denied that he had been with Hardman that day. He had been at work. On May 8th, there came a knock at the front door of the Hardman family home. Hartman's mother Julie answered and was greeted by D.C. Dewey Harding-Jones and D.C. Stephen Thomas. They informed her that they were arresting her son on suspicion of murder. As Matthew Hartman was being led from the property in handcuffs, he turned to his mother and said, Don't worry, it's all right, Mum. I didn't do anything. Hardman was placed into the back of a police car and brought to Carnarvon Police Station for further questioning. As dawn broke, more officers embarked on the Hardman family home with a search warrant. Screens were erected around the property as forensic experts were called in. As they examined the home, experts noticed a jacket in Hardman's bedroom. Inside one of the pockets, they found a 12-centimetre knife. It had come from a knife block in the kitchen. In Hardman's bedroom closet, experts found a pair of Levi shoes. The pattern on the sole matched the unidentified footprints spotted on the slate outside Mabel's home. Latex gloves were also discovered inside Hardman's wardrobe and a pair of jeans were recovered, on which corresponding fibres were matched to fibres found at the crime scene. That evening, a judge at Hollyhead Youth Court granted the police a further 25 hours to hold Matthew Hardman without charge, so they could continue questioning him. During the interrogation... Detective Sergeant Yestin Davis presented Hardman with the items recovered from his bedroom. Hardman explained that he had been carrying a knife because he was scared of walking alone at night. He said he had heard about Mabel's murder on the news and feared that there was some kind of maniac on the loose. Next, Detective Sergeant Davis queried the earlier incident with the German exchange student. Hardman replied that he had been smoking cannabis at the time, telling the officers, I just felt crazy in my head. My genes started going crazy. I could not stop myself going crazy. Hardman also remarked that he had been holding back his anger as if it had been, quote, bottled up for centuries. On January 11th, 2002, Matthew Hardman was charged with the murder of Mabel Lation. As he was informed, he nonchalantly asked if he could have a Big Mac, fries and a milkshake. The officers obliged and then took him to his cell. 
The next morning, upon learning what had happened, residents of the village gathered outside Hollyhead Youth Court to try and catch a glimpse of the teenager charged with the horrific murder. When police pulled up outside the court, Hardman emerged from the vehicle with a grey blanket covering his head. The crowd of more than 40 hulled abuse amid the tight security. During the 25-minute hearing, Matthew Hardman spoke only to confirm his name and personal details. He was flanked by security and stood alongside social workers. Hardman listened intently as the court clerk read aloud the charge. Hardman's solicitor Michael Strain did not make an application for bail, but he indicated that his client denied the allegations. Matthew Hardman was remanded into custody. In March, Hardman appeared in court once more, where he was ordered to stand trial for the murder of Mabel Lation. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. 
Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Matthew Hardman was born in Amloch in 1984. In 1998, the Hardman family moved to Llanfairpwyllgwyngyll, where Hardman attended Uskell David Hughes Secondary School. In his teenage years, Hardman struggled academically. Diagnosed with dyslexia, he found it hard to read and write, unable to keep up with his peers. He received extra tuition and although he did not enjoy lessons involving any subjects he found difficult, he was keen on art and media studies. In order to make some additional pocket money, when Hardman was 13 years old, he took some initiative and got a job. On Wednesday evenings, he would deliver newspapers to the locals, which included Mabel Lation. On occasion, Mabel needed to remind Hardman to close the garden gate behind him. The same year that the family moved to Llanvaipwilgwingil, Hardman was hit hard by the sudden death of his father. After Hardman left school three years later, he began to study art and design at Menai College. He left his job as a delivery boy, and found employment as a part-time kitchen porter and waiter at the Carrig Bran Hotel. Over time, Hardman's obsession with vampires grew. He collected books and visited vampire-related websites, including Vampire Donor Alliance and the Vampire Rights Movement. He firmly believed that vampires were real, and that in order to be immortal, they needed to drink human blood. Hardman also thought that in order to become a vampire, he needed to have a vampire bite his neck. While Hardman mostly kept his obsession to himself, he befriended a 16-year-old German exchange student who lived in lodgings nearby. The teenager was also interested in vampires, but on a more superficial level. According to Hardman, the place where he lived was the perfect location for vampires due to the fact that so many elderly people lived there. He said if they died after being bitten, then nobody would even notice. On the afternoon of September 22, 2001, Hardman visited the teenage exchange student at her lodgings. The pair entered her bedroom, where Hardman voiced his belief that she was a vampire. The teenager contended that she was not, but Hardman insisted telling her, You're going to bite me now. The teenage girl felt uneasy and told him, I'm sorry, I can't before trying to change the subject of the conversation. Hardman refused to give in, explaining, I have been waiting for this moment all my life. Please make me a vampire. Bite me. He then grabbed the teenage girl's shoulders and pushed her neck against his mouth, begging her to bite down. The teenager pushed Hardman away and began to scream terrified by Hardman's actions. The landlady of the lodging ran into the bedroom and found Hardman on top of the teenager. She tried to wrestle Hardman off the girl as he shouted, but she's a vampire. Other students had also rushed to the sound of the commotion, and as they tried to get Hardman out of the bedroom, he yelled, no, don't throw me out. I am a believer. I know you are all vampires. Come on, bite me. One lodger managed to drag Hardman off the teenage girl, while another student rang the police. 
When he was taken downstairs, Hardman's disturbing behaviour continued. He punched himself in the face, drawing blood, and shouted at the landlady and other students to smell his blood. Sergeant Peter Nicholson had responded to the call. The landlady directed him into the living room, where Hardman was sitting on the sofa. The officer later recalled, I attempted to speak to him to try to get him to leave peacefully. He didn't make any sort of coherent response. All he could say was, bite my neck. Hardman was arrested at the scene for breach of the peace and taken to the police station. The following morning, he was allowed to go home without being charged with any offence. A couple of weeks later, the teenage exchange student was on a walk in the village and she bumped into Matthew Hardman. He appeared confused when he asked her if he had turned into a vampire. She informed Hardman that vampires were not real. They were nothing more than a myth. But Hardman was certain that the German exchange student was a vampire. Appearing to show a tinge of mistaken jealousy, he asked, theoretically, if a vampire bit someone else, and then that person went on to kill somebody within a certain time frame, would that make them a vampire? Fed up with the irrational questions, the exasperated teenage exchange student denied that it would. Matthew Hardman's murder trial began at Mould Crown Court on July 15th, 2002. Mr Justice Richards had sworn in the jury consisting of seven women and five men. Before they were seated, jurors were told by the judge that they must not speak to anybody about the trial outside of the other members of the jury. He ordered them to ignore any media coverage and reached their verdict solely on the evidence that was going to be presented by the prosecution and defence. During opening statements, Prosecutor Roger Thomas QC said to the jury that Matthew Hardman had killed Mabel Lation and drank her blood because he was obsessed with vampires and believed it would make him immortal. According to the prosecution, Hardman decided that the sacrifice of another human being was necessary to obtain his goals. Roger Thomas QC spoke about Hardman's fixation, telling the jury, what may have started out as a bizarre interest became an obsession and led ultimately to murder. On the weekend that Mabel Lation was killed, Hardman's mother and stepfather were on holiday. So he planned, quote, deliberate murder to satisfy his own grotesque and selfish ends. The prosecution detailed how, as night fell, it was time for Hardman to carry out his plan. Under the cloak of darkness, Hardman walked the short distance to Mabel Lation's home. He was wearing a pair of latex gloves and carrying a large kitchen knife. He crept around the back of the home, lifted a piece of slate and threw it through the patio window. With a hearing impairment, Mabel did not realise. She was sitting in the living room watching television in her favourite armchair. The television was turned up loud to compensate for Mabel's hearing loss. Hardman slowly approached Mabel from behind, and began his frenzied attack. At one point, Mabel had grabbed the knife and tried to fend off her attacker, but to no avail. After she stopped breathing, Hardman then ripped off most of her clothing. He moved her body from the armchair where she was killed to another chair in the living room. Hardman then propped Mabel's legs on a stool made several deep gashes. 
he collected a saucepan from the kitchen and used it to collect Mabel Lation's blood. The prosecution presented forensic evidence which connected Matthew Hardman to the crime scene. This forensic evidence included the DNA found around the smash patio window. It had come back as a match to Hardman, and the chance of another person's DNA matching it was 1 in 73 million. Additionally, Mabel's DNA was found on the knife recovered from Hardman's jacket pocket. To obtain this DNA profile, forensic experts used a new technique known as low-copy number to increase the size of the sample they had obtained from the scene. The knife contained a mixture of DNA from two people, one male and one female. One of the profiles matched Hardman, and the second one matched Mabel Lation. Senior forensic scientist Susan Curry testified that the chance of finding such a match if it were from an unrelated female was 1 in 110,000. This was deemed a robust scientific result. However, Defence Counsel Robin Spencer QC told the jury that his client had a legitimate reason to be at Mabel Lation's home. Ardman had worked as a newspaper delivery boy and had called at Mabel's home, albeit years earlier. The defence tried to suggest that Hardman's DNA was at the crime scene because he had delivered items to Mabel's bungalow. Mabel had handled these items and then transferred the DNA to the smashed patio window frame. Forensic scientist Jacqueline Gardner said this was highly unlikely, but not impossible. As the trial entered its second week, Matthew Hardman shuffled into the courtroom and approached the witness stand. He was going to be testifying on his own behalf. Hardman provided his account of the day that Mabel Lation died. He claimed that he was home alone, slept until midday, and then spent the rest of the day, quote, dossing around. As for Mabel, Hardman alleged he was never at her home that day. Hardman claimed that the only time he was ever at the property was when he had delivered her newspapers. Speaking about vampires, Hardman argued that he was not obsessed with them like the prosecution had claimed, but merely had a subtle interest in the subject. Under cross-examination, Prosecutor Roger Thomas QC asked Hardman, Did you ever believe that vampires were real? Hardman responded, No. Did you ever believe that you could become immortal? No, Hardman replied. Roger Thomas QC then queried how Mabel Lation's blood got onto a kitchen knife in the defendant's possession. Puzzled, Hardman responded, I cannot see how it could have got anywhere near it. Roger Thomas QC told the jury that the murder of Mabel Lation was as distressing a killing as anybody could ever contemplate. Maybe 20 years ago, 10 years ago, or even 5 years ago, Matthew Hardman could have evaded detection, but he made several mistakes, leaving behind his DNA and taking Mabel Lation's DNA home with him. The defence called on a number of Matthew Hardman's former teachers and child psychologists who detailed Hardman's struggles in school due to dyslexia. The faculty members spoke highly of Hardman, although no further witnesses testified on his behalf. In Robin Spencer QC's closing arguments, he told the jury to consider whether the prosecution had made them sure that all the evidence had been handled in such a way 
that they could completely exclude the genuine possibility that there was an innocent explanation for the DNA transfer. The Defence Counsel suggested that the scientific evidence regarding the knife was unsatisfactory, telling the jury, Why on earth, if he was the killer, would he still be carrying that knife around? In summing up the case, Mr Justice Richards asked the jury to approach the evidence calmly, carefully and dispassionately. He reminded them, you must not decide this case on the basis of emotion, sympathy, prejudice or gut reaction, but squarely on the evidence and only on the evidence. The jury returned less than four hours later. The courtroom fell silent as the foreman announced the verdict. Matthew Hardman began to weep as his mother could be heard crying from the public gallery. The jury had unanimously found Hardman guilty of the murder of Mabel Lation. In announcing the verdict, Mr Justice Richard said to Hartman, You hoped for immortality, but all you have achieved is the brutal ending of another person's life and the bringing of a life sentence upon yourself. The judge also remarked that the evidence against Hartman was overwhelming. He said that the court may have hoped for a psychological explanation for his behaviour yet the defence had failed to provide one. Matthew Hardman was ordered to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, a sentence that applies to juveniles convicted of murder. He was told he would have to serve a minimum of 12 years before he could be considered for parole. As Hardman was led from the courtroom, his mother called out, I love you, son. Hardman continued crying while sitting alone in the holding cells as he awaited transportation to begin his sentence. Any time a guard walked past the cell, he professed his innocence, contending that the jury had got it wrong. So where are we now? Shortly after the life sentence was handed down to Matthew Hartman, he appealed the ruling. His application to the appeal court was thrown out after a judge determined there was no legal basis to allow the appeal to move forward. Hartman's solicitor Michael Strain attempted to appeal the sentence again in February 2003. He argued that his client did not receive a fair trial because Hardman was portrayed as a monster. It was the solicitor's belief that the evidence regarding Hardman's obsession with vampires should never have been presented to the jury. Strain also contended that the evidence regarding the incident with the German exchange student was irrelevant and should have been excluded. However, this second appeal attempt was also denied. Later that same year, the police officers who investigated the murder and their team leaders were commended during a ceremony for their work cracking the case and catching the killer. North Wales Police Chief Constable Richard Brunstrom presented the accolades and described how the commendations were not a common occurrence. He said, It was an unpleasant case which the officers had to get very close to, in terms of dealing with the relatives and the appalling scene itself. We are human beings just like anybody else, but have to retain a sense of professional detachment. We cannot collapse in horror and recoil, It was a psychological challenge. 
Matthew Hardman would make a third bid for freedom in February 2004. He turned to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, arguing that specific evidence should not have been presented during his trial. Once again, the appeal was denied. As of the time of this recording, Matthew Hardman is 38 years old and has now spent more years of his life behind bars than on the outside. In 2017, triple killer Arthur Hutchinson argued that his whole life order was inhumane and degrading and in violation of Article 3 of the European Convention of Human Rights. The test case went before a panel of judges for the ECHR and they found that the sentence should be upheld. This decision applied to some Welsh prisoners who were subsequently told their life sentences mean life and they would never be considered for parole. This includes Matthew Hardman, who is unlikely to ever see the outside world again. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.